Here's a question for you. Is there music in outer space? By the way, welcome to the podcast. I always race ahead when we're talking about outer space. Uh, Look, in 1969, three American astronauts heard what I would think would have been some ominous whistling, and it kind of freaked them out a bit. And why wouldn't it have? I mean, my God, you're floating in outer space, among the stars, in the darkness, unprotected, and then suddenly you hear someone whistling? But look, other than that, we don't know much about music in outer space. Now, I'm no expert, but I'm sure that there's probably music up there. I think there is. I'm guessing there's a pretty solid interstellar music scene. I mean, there has to be a Jupiter version of the replacements, right? I mean, who knows? But all I do know is this. We're not here today to talk about Jupiter. We're here today to talk about Venus. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. of Love Tractor, a band which features my guests today on the program, Armistead Welford and Mark Klein. Let me tell you a little bit about Love Tractor and Armistead Welford and Mark Klein. All right, so we've had Mark Klein on the show before, and on that episode I gave a really long introduction, so I'll spare you having to sit through another one. So let me just say this. Love Tractor are an endless delight. The Athens, Georgia outfit got their start in the early 80s, and they put out a handful of albums that still sound as fresh as ever. From This Ain't No Outer Spaceship to Around the Bend to Themes from Venus, which, by the way, has been reissued with bonus tracks this month, Love Tractor quickly established themselves as one of the most creative, vital, and intriguing bands around. And mind you, this was during a time where there were a lot of creative, vital, and intriguing bands around. Just in the town they hailed from alone, you had Pylon, the B-52s, R.E.M., Flat Duo Jets. You get the idea. So, what does Love Tractor sound like? Well, to me, they sound like magic. An effortless blend of celestial surf, heavenly jangle, cosmic dance grooves, and art school indie rock. 
Love Tractor remain one of the most eternal, evergreen treasures in modern music. And you know how music can be fixed to a timeline? Like, sure, we love Duran Duran, but it sounds like 1983 when you listen to Duran Duran. Well, Love Tractor evade that timeline with unreasonable ease. They sound like they could have existed in any era, including ones that haven't happened yet. They're smart, they're cool, they're inventive, they're melodic, and they are an absolute joy. So, without further ado, here's Armstead Welford and Mark Klein of Love Tractor, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. from a lot of the art rock and some of the prog rock stuff that influenced us, you know, were, were in, that influenced us when we were in high school. I mean, there was, there's definitely a ton of Roxy music. The ti- you know, the title track is, is, if you get rid of our vocals on it, it's basically a Roxy music song. <laughs> and um, we all have uh music that we um we all get together and then we all have our own influences but the the thing about the whole all the albums from the 80s is um you know we'd uh, get home and start writing in the studio you you come up with a jam at a sound check or something uh or you come up with a jam and practice and then you try to uh uh, make it grow live and uh, I just I think um, I think stuff sometimes just happens that way like uh, yeah Dennis is a really I just love that song and it really rocks but where it comes from is very uh, it's a very um, swing kind of delicate love tractor song and then uh we just nab, we'll, we'll mine from our old songs and we nabbed the chord progression and just started messing with it. And, and I can remember, Mark, when we were messing with that chord progression and it started getting kind of like rock, rock, rock here. And then you had come up with that, you know, and while we were jamming that, we had, we were doing that for a long time, you know, and then yeah. all of a sudden it sculpts into this. Um, but it went uh, from two four to four four. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, it was a two four song, but um, which is totally different. And we we are going to uh, record that. It's an old love tractor song that you know should should have uh, come out in nineteen eighty five or um, so that no one, will, no one will know it's related to Venice. Um, but there's something about playing live and then going in and recording that's so old school um that i miss uh and when we did sky at night we wrote all those songs but we did get to go out and play them live and 
we were, a, we've always been a seasoned live band that I'm proud of. And so we could play that stuff live and it sounded great. Um, but uh, yeah, that, I guess that's the old fashioned way of, um, of formulating these songs. And, and, uh, um, and then it's so fun when we all come together and it's like, man, this sounds good, you know? Because yeah. Everybody has different directions and different opinions. And when you oh. uh, come together on something, it feels really uh, triumphant. Right. To me, the what really sort of the where, where that record came from was it's go you go back to we did an EP called Till the Cows Come Home and we did a cover of Kraftwerk's Neon Lights and when we did Neon Lights it was a very big success but for me it was a personal success because it was really a type of sound that I was really trying to hit on that and there was another song called March on the record and. So when we started writing um, around the uh, the next record, with this ain't no outer spaceship. I really, I had that in mind. The producer Pat Irwin really had a different sound in mind. Um, we didn't really clash on on the sound because you know he came in. It was really one of the first times that we really worked with a producer that was really kind of sculpting us and was making us take a look at our arrangements and, you know, break the arrangements down. And, um, you know. He had just worked with uh, Deborah Isle from- Yeah, uh, Romeo Void. Romeo Void, right. Stuff. And he, talk, he would just talk about the pressure he was under from the label. And it was just so much pressure and so much pressure. So when he came in with us, it probably wasn't that kind of pressure, but it was still like our first major label. So there was this pressure on how to fix us. And uh, we didn't really need to be fixed because, you know, well, tractor uh, um, just happens uh, organically. Um, I mean, no, there, was, well, there was some stuff that I enjoyed uh, <laughs> rearranging and, and uh, making it more pop like the pop sensibility but it's still always something a little artsy about it even with the all right with the first course verse bridge thing we never thought about things that way we uh we just um sounds sort of corny but coming out of the art school we were just sort of like paint these cells it used to just be part one and part two and, and how to make them relate to each other and then part one part two part three and then how do we get back there and that kind of thing? And I guess that's sort of like verse chorus, verse chorus. But working with Pat, he was, he was, um, he was sort of um, trying to um, be a taskmaster with us. He was under a lot of pressure. Mark, when you guys were on Big Time, what was their plan? What was their vision for you? Big Time, the owner of the record company literally thought that we were going to be the next Thompson Twins. <laughs> 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 and kept telling the producer that that they, and we're like what and we've been in sort of these situations before with going to meetings with record companies and they're like laying out this big plan for our career we're like that's not us guys you know we're forget about it and pat was under a lot of pressure to to do this and he had this concept of very, this very clean record and i actually had this concept of a much thicker record um, with a lot of layers and a lot of textures and whatnot. And it really didn't happen that way. 
And so when we came to themes from Venus, it the, that record sort of wrote itself in a way, very much like our first record. And that's one of the reasons that um, we're releasing this themes of Venus right after out of sequence with our first, you know, we're releasing it just after our first record now re-releasing it because in a way, both of those records are an entirety unto themselves. They're a complete work and they should be listened to that way. And, um, and it, it was, what was really interesting was because we, the whole record was written. The whole record was demoed. It was ready to be recorded. We were down in Florida doing a string of dates. And I got a call from our manager, Glenn. And he said, um, are you sitting down? <laughs> I said, no, but I, I said, no, but I will. And he said, um, the label has gone belly up. And, and I was like, oh, well, that's not great because we had studio, all the studio times book. We had, who's Bruce, John Leckie, who- um, Stone Roses. It's like, yeah, and, and Echo and the Buddy Man yeah. and, and all of that. And, you know, booked, everything was booked. And I think it was like maybe a month later, we were supposed to be going into the studio and doing this. And, and it was sort of like we had done our journeyman work on the last record with Pat. And we were really, really ready to go in and do this record. The way it was written, it was this whole totality of a record. Um, we really sort of thought it out, figured it out. We picked this produce that we knew would bring us the sort of sound that we really wanted to have. And then we get told, guess what guys, you're screwed. You know, you don't have a label. So, but actually it, it turned out to be a benefit for us because we went back to Tandy Beard, our old label, an independent, we had no major, we didn't have like RCA breathing down our neck to produce hits. And so we could go in and Pat, uh, we were working with, so we said, well, let's go work with Mitch Easter. And I can't get the story straight, maybe Armstead can, but I, I can't remember if we were doing a string of dates and we called it Pat and said, can we come in and do a couple of songs with you? Or we just booked it and went and started working on the record. Yeah. Um, I, I forgot who suggested Mitch. Um, we were you, have to, you have to understand that um, um, if you, with the Athens sound, that you know, there was um, B-52s and Pylon and the Method Actors and our drummers Kit's band, the side effects, which was sort of like Pylon and the Ventures, and then REM and us. But the objective was uh, everybody was trying to sound different from each other. With that, everybody wanted everybody else to be into each other's music, which we were. Um, but um, so REM was taking the path going up to and recording with Mitch Easter and Don Dixon and stuff like that. So we never really, we always wanted to do our own path. It was like, well, we can't work with Mitch because um, that's R.E.M.'s producer and blah, 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 blah. And then somewhere along, the, you know, a few years go by and it's like, let's, uh, 
why don't we try out Mitch Easter? And it was just like coming home, you know, it was a real family with the North Carolina, Georgia connection, DBs, and uh, we all got to know each other. And then I guess R.E.M. turned us all into the North Carolina crowd, but um, they were big DBs fans and um, and we all did shows together. And it, and it was like, um, and we all had the same we booking drove, We drove straight from Memphis we had a gig in Memphis and we drove straight to Winston Salem, Mark. And uh That's it, yeah. And then we went to the drive in studio and we um I remember we laid down Hey Mess and I probably broke my saw. But all I know is this 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 it was just Magic. Like coming home. And then um then we went down to Georgia and Danny um had arranged for us to do Eddie Beard was the was the owner of DB Records. DB Records. And uh to do some recording, uh we took these recordings in to uh Doppler. Was it Doppler Studios or Doppler Studios yeah. with with Brendan O'Brien. Brendan O'Brien, who was wonderful. Yeah. Um but uh some of the um with the themes from Venus we were back to playing this stuff live and it was new live and it was time to go record it. Um, and that's the way Outer Spaceship was too. But um, but with Thieves for Venus, it was like going in as a band and recording it as a band. And, uh, but we, we went in with Brendan and I guess he, uh, he, he was, I don't know what, there was something different. And uh, well, Brendan was much more tied into building up his career and being what the sound of the time was. So, you know, we really, I mean, I had this really clear vision that like, I, I remember sitting down with Mitch saying, I don't want the drums to be as big as everyone else is doing the drums. I know they're gonna need to be kind of like a certain sound, but let's kill all this reverb on them because I want room for all these other instruments. And Mitch was like, you know, really kind of understood it all. Well, that's and, too bad. We should have done it with Brendan and we'd be as big as Pearl Jam. <laughs> also, and, also, yeah. and also, you know, Mark, just to back up a bit, you mentioned about, you were talking about big time folding. And I want people to understand, because I don't think people remember big time records as much as they should, um, because they, they were a label, but the only label to fold where it actually broke my heart because they had all my yeah. bands, right? They had Hoodoo Gurus, Huxton Creepers. They had- Yeah, Love and Rockets. Butcher. I mean- Yeah, yeah Jazz Rockets. Butcher, Love and Rockets, uh, Alex, Alex Hilton, Alex Dream Hilton. Syndicate. Dream, Dream Syndicate. Greg Cross. Red Cross. Cross. Red, Red Cross. Red Cross. On there. And I think yeah. Christmas was on there. Christmas is on there. We were just so excited to be part of a group of bands like that. And then, uh, and then be able to go to the mall in Louisiana and all right, we're on tape now. Yeah, you're right, right, right. Yeah. It's gonna be CD. Yeah. Because on DB, we were just LP only. And we should have hauled albums around back then, but nobody did that back then. We could have sold a bunch of albums, but, but. Um, and no one did merch back then. And no the one. fall was on there too, weren't they? I think the fall might've done. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was, it was a, this crying, shame that the record company went under and oh. i you know no one knows why you know everyone has you know their reasons trust me there there is a facebook group 
performer big time bands. Oh, is there really? That makes yes. sense. It, it, that yeah. feels we were so lucky to be able to get out of the contract because the dump truck, Seth, said he had uh, they had some problems. Yeah. You know, oh, he helped. The, Fred Bestel held it. Tapes, but but he had to fight with them. Fred Bestel, who owned the label, uh, I don't know, along with who else, but um, held Dump Truck complete hostage. You know, got in a fight with them, held them hostage, wouldn't let them out of their contract, even though the label had folded. It was just like, you know, and, big, it, and I think it was just big time America folded. Uh, That's right. You know, and big time, big time Australia, big time UK was still in existence. It was big time America that folded with all of these bands. And we were all kind of, I mean, how, you know, can I cuss? This is a podcast. You can, you can cuss. Oh, good. I mean, <laughs> we're all just sitting there with our pants down, you know, shit out of luck. And it was just like a really big pisser for all of us. And we were, at the time, everyone was just so shocked. It wasn't like we were all getting on the phone and calling each other going, what, what happened, what? We were like, what's our next move? Because we were in the middle of this career. And, you know, we had just done this record. It was successful. And, and we had this other record lined up, ready to go, you know, move on with the career everything was fine it was like moving for us and then the label folds but it turned out artistically to sort of shake us back into where we really wanted to be and not be dictated to by the industry and by the record company and one of the interesting things that we discovered when we were we started working with brendan we were working with mitch and we were working with brendan and Brendan is a great engineer, great guy, really smart. And I, in fact, love his mixes that he did. Boy, I sure um, would look, yeah. I, you know, I love those, but they were much more commercial sounding for that time. And, and it was just something that, you know, we were, we were like, not, we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that. We, you know, there's on our liner notes, there's a Annie Zelensky uh, is, wrote a thing of the liner notes and she hit it, the nail on the head where she talked about like Themes from Venus being this sort of precursor to post rock and all these other bands. And and when we went in the studio to record and Mitch sort of got it the same way that we were talking about, it's like, this is old. This is everything that, every sound, everything that, people want us to do is old we don't want to do that we want to do something different i know grunge was starting to happen we and that in a way kind of was influencing us in a sense that we wanted to rock everything up a bit but we also had this sense of we wanted a, a variety of textures and one of the things that we wanted to do on the record was have we're really influenced by Lowe, by David Bowie. We wanted to have one side be much more rock and roll and then the other side have like all these instrument, all the instrumental kind of tracks and the, the less commercial tracks and stuff on it. But we couldn't do it because of the timing of vinyl, of the timing of the sides of vinyl. And we were still, we were in that place where you would still put out, you still put out a record in three formats. You put out a CD, you put out vinyl, and you put out a cassette. And uh, 
but I, I would say, I mean, I love what you guys have done, but I selfishly, I would have loved to have heard what John Leckie could have done with Love Travels. Oh, me too. I mean, right? That would have been kind of, I mean, you heard what he did with the Stone Roses and it's like, what would he have done with Love Tractor? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, the mind spins, right, Armistead? I mean, really. Yeah. I would have loved to have worked with him and, and not worry about uh, how are we going to pay for these, you know, back then the studio time was always expensive. And yeah. We were still suffering for the Jimmy Carter years, you know, so raising money for each recording it was so nice to have a label you know that was like hey we'll send you to the studio and y'all we yeah we need important and we're gonna pay for your studio time instead of instead of uh, okay how are we gonna raise enough money to what's interesting to me though is uh recently somebody told me they said have you heard this stone roses track because it sounds just like you guys which one? Like uh, One Love or Love Spreads? I don't know because you know what? I've never listened to the Stone oh, Roses. Probably, probably Fool's Gold. It was probably Fool's Gold. I'll bet you that was what they were talking about. It might be. I, I've, I never really paid attention to them. I mean, when it came to sort of 90s Brit pop, I was really into pulp. I, you know, that was like my band yeah. Yeah. For, for 90s Brit pop um, and still is. I, you know, I think Jarvis Cocker's a genius and uh, uh but you know i thought it was interesting and you know and also like just you know his concept of the stuff he did with the stranglers with with um you know echo and the bunny men you know yeah i love them and you know what he did there and then that we were able to get him and what especially with those songs that we had what he it would have been very interesting to see what he would have done yeah, it would have been fascinating. I mean, I would have been interested in that. I mean, and I can tell you from a 19-year-old, when Themes from Venus came out, I'm 19 years old. I'm here in Northern California in the Bay Area. To my ears, um, all I could think of was the Beach Boys. It sounded like the Beach Boys from Outer Space. Oh, that's great. I love that. That's all I could hear. And I, you know, I put like Crash and Venus, um, and broke my saw on people's mixtapes all the time. And it was literally like, I would say to them, this is like, um, this is like the Beach Boys from Outer Space. Um, <laughs> it, it was only, it. you know, it was years later when my taste became a little more sophisticated where I started to hear Roxy music. And I heard, um, you know, uh, you know, some of the German stuff, that, sort of that crap rock stuff you guys were yeah. saying, where I went, oh, <laughs> okay, I get it now. Um, but well, those harmonies, those harmonies are, to me, yeah. they're straight from the beach. Uh, did you guys uh, hear they that? They are. We love, we are, more of those. we are huge Beach Boys. You know, everyone quotes Pet Sounds, but I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, we like the Beach Boys prior to Pet Sounds. Mm. I mean, I love Pet Sounds, love Good Vibrations, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, Surfer Girl yeah. and stuff like that is, I love yeah. that stuff. I love Alex, um Brian Wilson came through here and a friend of mine had a ticket for me and I thought, well, I'll pop in and check it out. But I was kind of tired and uh, and I went, there's a smaller theater here. And um, then I, there was a lot of hipsters there, but I didn't realize it because I thought it was like the old guys were there, come on, play Beach Boys and all that. And he, they were playing new stuff and he had assembled this 
band, um, Al Jardine was there and Al Jardine's son was um, singing Brian Wilson's high parts. But so I said, I'm going to sit down for a little bit and catch some of this. And they, they did In My Room, you know. Ah, and, that's uh, a great and, song. Uh, man, I'm telling you, because, you know, grew up with that stuff. My brother had, um, you know, I had a brother who's five years older. So I was like, we, you know, nursed on all this stuff. So when they hit those harmonies at the end of In My Room with the, you know, the breathy inflections and, and then In My Room, then it's supposed to be Brian Wilson, but it was Al Jardine's son. You could feel the wetness going down my chest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like, and I was kind of filming on my phone. I was like, this is absolutely beautiful. And I ended up staying the whole night. It was great. It was so good you know new stuff and then mixing that stuff in and he pieced a band together that could play that stuff the way it was supposed to be played and uh, anyway i thought i was just gonna stay for then when i saw the old guys i was like i gotta get out of here this you're right right well, then, I, I mean, next thing i know there was i think both cheeks had a tear it's just beautiful stuff we love this robert, robert waldrop who uh wrote um, a lot of the lyrics for the B-52s, their hits like um, Rome. He wrote the lyrics to Rome and to... He wrote the chord progression to that stuff too. Yeah. It, and, you know, Robert's this really sensitive, really brilliant guy. And in fact, there's a song that we're going to be recording that was supposed to be on, the, on Sky at Night um, that we already kind of recorded but we never finished and he wrote the lyrics for um he used to come and he'd stay at my house in athens and he'd say let's turn off all the lights in the house and let's put on in my room you know beach boys lay on the floor yeah and we'd lay on the floor completely dark at night in a house in the house and listen to the beach boys laying on the floor and just listening to those beautiful harmonies, just you know, wafting over you, and, and just I'm gonna go visit him soon. Just amazing, and well, the, you know, I mean, to me, the vocals on Crash, especially, that just yeah. to me is very Brian Wilson. It's very Beach Boys. Again, my 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 very young ear isn't letting that go even now. That, that that's what I lead with when I hear it. Um, and, and that, you know, Themes for Venus is a really interesting album uh, in terms of, of uh, as a, for a band like you, I got Themes from Venus, DB sent it over because I was working in college radio at the time, and I went, this is going to be massive, like this record is perfect. And, and, and it's weird to say, I don't want to say it's my favorite Love Tractor record, but it, it's darn near close. And one of the things that I really love about it, that I'm really attracted to, is it feels like you guys are shifting into a totally different gear, um, yeah. almost like almost like you're like you, you you're apotheosis. It was like you guys are ready to take over, um, and so what's really interesting to me about that record is that it then there was this huge pause, and then Sky at Night comes out so much later. Did you feel yeah. that the momentum? First of all, do you feel? Am I right in the sense that like the confidence on themes from Venus is infectious? Um, and then in terms of that there was a nothing happened after a while, 
did that interrupt that momentum if i'm right about the first part of the play? yeah like you're talking about the lot writing the songs live and um yeah and we yeah. were just you know we were, we were full of um we were full of vinegar and sperm and and um you know we were in shape uh for that stuff and um um so we didn't have the, we started playing live again in 95 and we were great live, but uh, we weren't out on the road, just hammering this stuff, making songs better and better, um, you know, as they grow live uh, and then having epiphanies and taking this out and putting that in and then trying it live. And uh, uh, we had a lot of confidence. We always had a lot of confidence in our, in our music and um and i always heard that we were a great live band i always thought we were a great live band but i heard that from somebody that didn't know i was in love tractor and i was in on a european tour with steve Wynn. and he goes did you know the band love track he's like great live band (laughs) there you go and he didn't even know i was in love right that's that's that is the most pure (laughs) compliment they were great so we uh, we, you know, the hard thing was for us was <clears throat> we toured that record for so long. We, the record came out and we, I, I Arm said, you correct me on the timing because you know all the time, but we must have been out on the road for like a year touring the record just by ourselves. And then right when that tour ended, the B-52s called and, you know, they had just released um, Cosmic Thing. Right. And. Yeah. So and we, we got, got in the records and more. So we, you know, we're invited to do 60 dates with them, which is, you know, a lot of dates. It's a lot of road work. And then we got put, so we finished that. And of course, what do you do? They sent us back out on the road, you know, to keep touring the record. And so when we finally got off the road and got back, it, you know, people were close to nervous breakdowns. And well, also, um, I mean, all we needed was to take a little break. And then, because our live shows were after that tour, I remember we played Virginia Beach on the way back to Georgia and it was packed and we were jamming. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, we were jamming in Austin after the tour with the New Order back in 1985. I just remember the live take from that was like, oh my God, this is great. Um, but our drummer, Andrew Carter, uh, he was getting married and uh we we're sort of like a spinal tap thing we've got well first drummer was kit swartz who plays on um, the first love two albums around the bed but um for a little while there he said he didn't and back then you could only be in one band you know like nowadays it's like i'm in this band i'm in that band but it was like you can't be in that band you're in this band and anyway Kit, his band, The Side Effects, he's like, I, I really don't have time for Love Tractor. And by the grace of God, Bill Berry wanted to play with us. He really dug what we were doing. And we'd done a show with this, this, this old fashioned drum machine that went, you know, and, the, and we had the, the, a lot of the instrumentals um, from the first album. And then, and then um, Bill started playing with us. And that was, really exciting of course we wanted him to quit 
<laughs> we didn't want him to quit Aria, but they were planning on going out touring. And uh, well, he came to us and said, "Are you guys willing to quit school and make a go of it, go on the road?" And yeah, I said, "And I said no, not yet." I don't know what you said, Armstead. I was ready to. I was ready to rock. And, and Mike is a little. Speaking of Brian Wilson, Mike has always had this kind of um, travel phobia, and um, we really had to work hard to get him out on the road. Um, and uh, thank God he did, though, because we had become such a great live band. But um, I think back then he probably wasn't ready to. Uh, well, Mike wasn't in school then, but maybe uh, Mike would have wanted to hit the road. I don't know, but I was ready to quit school. You <laughs> know, Mark's Peter. Father, yeah, my dad. <laughs> Mark's father had. Um, Mark was in the closet about being in a band. It was okay <laughs> that he was in art school, and uh, but he. Uh, you know, and I'd go to Mark's house in Atlanta for weekends. We had to keep the band thing quiet. It was like if, if me and Mark were dating. Why? Why was that? Why was that a big secret, Mark? I don't know. <laughs> My father was like old school Irish Catholic doctor, <laughs> like you know. But he's Flannery you know, O'Connor's first cousin. You would think he'd I be know. open to the <laughs> idea of being artistic, and uh, I know. But, uh, and they're the ones that encouraged me to go to art school. And in fact, I did an interview recently where with somebody from one of these Flannery O'Connor societies where they were trying to talk to, you know, like talk about Love Tractor and Flannery O'Connor. I was like, I'll, I'll, you know, I was like, okay, I'll do the podcast. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to anybody. But it's like, you know, you know, I, just because we're, co you know, cousins and it's my family, but there's, you know, yeah, I remember as a, I remember her as a child, and you know all of my aunts and uncles and all that kind of stuff. But um, you know, there's really no relationship between her writing and our music. Although there were plenty of southern bands that would always say they were the Flannery O'Connor of rock, right? And, you know, and I would always my laugh mother, and say, "No, you're not." My <laughs> mother um, loved Flannery O'Connor's writing, and she really loved our music and. And um, my sister too, and they were a little snobby about it. They they thought we were very highbrow. And the other bands I played with that were more rocking and stuff like that. My, my I'm not going to name names, but my sister had no. She's going. I can't stand that stuff. You know, when you all used to play, it was like, it was like Mozart. You know, it was it was. Uh, intriguing and, and then my mother too would say it's very highbrow this is very good stuff and she would if she didn't like it she'd say that but she was always didn't know why that mark's um you know coming from an artistic family like that well, yeah but I mean, you know i guess your mark's father was just a worried father you know but mark i would just i would take a flannery o'connor quote and i would i would blend it and i would say nobody with a good band needs to be justified <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. They were, very they were very proud of it when we came out of the closet, though, Mark. Yeah. They came yeah. To me when we opened for Pylon at the Memorial Hall. All the parents came. And uh, and then we used to get a lot of uh, 
press in Atlanta and be on TV, and they were proud. Mark's I remember I'd be walking through the mall, like a mall in Atlanta with my father, and like fans would stop me and, you know, want to get an autograph or shake my hand. My father was shocked by it all, you know. You know, you have to understand, he really was, he came from that Glenn Miller generation. Okay. That, you know, yeah. that didn't, you know, and for, for me, my parents had us older. Yeah. You know, they were older parents and, and well, they, they weren't like, they were they weren't like 21 and had us, you know. They were in their thirties. Mark's yeah. mother tried to be hip to the scene, you know, like our first album. I was so thrilled that people liked it because it was so weird and it still is so different. But my father really liked it. And he was, you know, he's a famous First Amendment lawyer, but he likes music and had a nice singing voice. And uh, I didn't think he'd like it, and he really liked it. But Mark's mother. Mark's father is an internist, was an internist in Atlanta, and one of his patients was Kenny Rogers. And, and apparently the helicopter landed on the building. building. And after Mark's father examined him and he was going to the helicopter, Mark's mother went, Mr. Rogers, hello. And then she she runs up and hands Kenny Rogers our first album. <laughs> I'm sure he loved it. What do you think, Mark? Uh, no. You know what? Mark it sure went flying right out of the helicopter with our first album. It was you know, like I a frisbee. I don't. I don't, I don't. I don't care if Kenny Rogers ever listened to it. Just the fact that it was in his possession makes me. Happy. Yeah, it really does. To do with this. It really does. Mark, when did you finally reveal to your father that you were in a band? I, I can't. When, when we needed to go, when we started recording, and I was like, listen, I got to sit down and tell you guys something, because, you know, I mean, my father just was from this whole different era where, you know, he had gone to medical school, and it was, you know. He went to art school, too, right? Yeah, but he, you know, he, you know, he went to art school to meet my mother, really, but, um, you know, he got to medical school and came from this really large, I mean, old Irish Catholic family in the South, and there are no Catholics in the South. So it's like this tight, I mean, you know, Flannery Connor was his double first cousin. Mm. His, you know, like his mother and father and her mother and father were brothers and sisters, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. if, if you and, married my sister and I married your sister, our kids would be double first cousins but yeah you say that people immediately think west virginia but it's not not the case it's just <laughs> well there there are some you know there are so few catholic families in the south that you know i when i went off to grammar school my aunt betty said said okay this person is your third cousin this person's your second cousin this person is your such and such cousin and named off all of these kids in the school and told me who all my cousins were. And, you know, up in, even in Athens, up on top of Cars Hill, Armstead, there's a big house on top of Cars Hill. Those are my cousins, the trainers, which were my great right, grandmother's that. family. And that house that was across, it's on Lumpkin, the trainer house, which is um, across from uh, like Myers Hall that antebellum house there that's 
you know, from one of my great grandmothers. You know, you know who used to rent the cars house uh -uh. for a little while. JB from Widespread Panic. <laughs> he lived there for a little bit. Well, you know, Mark, what's really interesting is that, like, I'm Jewish, and, and the conversation we always have is, oh, I'm from Indiana, and there weren't a lot of Jews, or where it were, I'd never heard anyone say there weren't a lot of Catholics around. I didn't know there was a dearth of Catholics in the South. Why? I should know this, but why, why was that? It's, it's really, you know, cat, the South was, South was, especially Georgia, South Carolina, Southern Baptist. It mm. was Southern Baptist. And, the, you know, my, like my neighborhood I grew up with in, my neighborhood in Atlanta that I grew up in was like the Catholic Jewish ghetto. And it was all Catholic and Jewish families. And it was probably because, um, I, I don't know, it was like, because, we, you know, they didn't want us running around with Protestant kids because they weren't old, old world and didn't have old world values. And um, I don't know, but, you know, it was like, yeah, it's probably the same thing like in Indiana. Um, well, you know, South you don't think, you, you, you know, you don't think of a bunch of Ashkenazi Jews in the middle of it, Indiana, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> Right. Just um, right. It was the same thing in the South because the, the Southern Jews have a rich history. Yes, yeah, the Armstrong are both I'm a, partial I'm, Jewish. Is that right? I'm from the colonial yeah. Jews out of Richmond. And the, I'm proud to say I'm Meyer Meyer's fifth great grandson. He was a silversmith in New York. And, wow. Uh, but my great great grandfather fell in love with an Episcopalian. And a lot of the, my son's name is Hayes, which comes from our. Uh, our Sephardic ancestry through Boston, but um, um, the, the Hayes sisters knew they they remained spinsters here in Richmond, and then eventually went back to Boston because of the Civil War. Um, but a lot of the, um, you know, it was hard to get rabbis and synagogues and stuff. We'll have to sit down and talk about this, Alex, sometimes because I'm. Uh, it's, uh, the early Jewish families in Richmond, you have to go through St. Paul's Episcopal Church, you know, to to get to the um, early Jewish because they, they, you know, eventually just uh, didn't, they married out of it. And also yeah. the early, you know, the, 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 there was a later um, uh, Eastern European Jews settling in Richmond too, but uh, I guess you know, in the old days, it was like, oh, those people over there, they're not us. That, you know, right. I mean, honkies do that too, you know, it was, you know. Of course, <laughs> of course, of course they and, do. Uh, everybody yeah. does that, you know, those, you know, Irish people do that. That's no friend of mine, even though he's my cousin. I mean, I, I, I yeah. am. <laughs> he's no I friend look, of mine, but it's your first cousin. You know, I look exactly <laughs> like my father, my father, <laughs> like a leprechaun, but I'm a quarter Jewish. And, you know, uh, my brother is Jewish. He's a practicing Jew. Hmm. And um, well, Mark would always talk about his Irish skin, and I would brag on my uh, <laughs> Jewish ancestry. And, and uh, I, I complain about my Irish skin. But then I was think, thinking your mother, who's very uh, beautiful, I thought. Then Mark said she was Italian, but I was like, she kind of <laughs> looks 
little Jewish to me and your brother Patrick too, but um, um, which would be a compliment, but. Um, so it's on, it, Mark, it's on your father's side or is it on your mother's side? My mother, my mother, she's from New Orleans. So it's a complete mix. I mean, I've got black blood. It's, I've got Jewish blood. I've got, you know, it's, I've got Ashkenazi, Sephardic. I've got, you, you know, that New Orleans Creole yeah, mix. And yeah, the, the Sephardic. The Spanish that came to Cuba, they, it turns out they were Jewish. Yeah, they were all Jewish. And the, the, the Jewish part, part of the Jewish part of my family, uh, they, they came from Cuba to New Orleans. And, um, uh, you know, so I'm like one of those mixes and it's yeah just, you know like complete well, although because mark has more jewish blood in him than me and i thought that i was the <laughs> well, special did, one in the band mark it's so exotic that you have all those mixes because i did the ancestry.com and my results were i opened the envelope and it was like what do you think <laughs> it was just like <laughs> all jew there's no, good for you yeah i've got nothing nothing but that but it, it's interesting to hear that and also the idea of being in touch with, I always find that this is a generalization, but I find that with friends of mine from the South, they're much more in touch with their ancestry than people here. Look at that. Armstead has. Yeah. This is my portrait upstairs of Samuel Hayes Myers. There you go. Uh, um, that was painted uh, by a guy named Robert Sully, who um, um, was a friend of Edgar Allan Poe's. A schoolmate, Edgar. No and this portrait's upstairs. My his sister, Rachel Hayes Myers. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah. But their younger that. brother, Gustavus Myers, was uh, the mayor of Richmond uh, during the Civil War. And uh, I always heard this through family gossip. But um, he greeted Lincoln when Lincoln came to Richmond right after it burned. Um, a few days before he was tragically assassinated. But, you know, nobody wanted to greet Lincoln, but Gus Davis Myers did. And he's another very interesting character. Of course, he married out of the faith too, but he's got some very interesting descendants that we'll, when we when we come out and play Berkeley, uh, I can't wait to tell you about I got, but Yeah, uh, I mean- and, and then I got we'll, a- um, We'll talk about the tribe. Yeah, I got- We'll talk a, about the tribe. I had- um, <laughs> I don't know how I got this uh, day play a role in Lincoln in the House of Representatives. And um, it was filmed in Richmond and uh, we were in the green room and I left something upstairs and I ran upstairs and uh, to grab it. And there's um, Steven Spielberg. And, uh, and he had a brown hat on and my brother had gone to brown and uh, and they used to laugh at him when he would talk about his Jewish ancestry because it was so, you know, it was like, oh, it was my great, great grandfather. But, uh, but I've, I'd mentioned, you know, you're not supposed to talk to the director, but I didn't know that. But uh, I said, I, I'm dying to tell you this. My fourth great uncle greeted Lincoln when he came to Richmond and I have his brother's and sister's portrait. And he thought that was like totally interesting. And I said, they lived over here they were a very prominent Richmond family and he he's like southern Jews he knew all about them but then <laughs> they had given all the principal actors a book about the, the Richmond at the time and sure enough he's mentioned in it 
So I thought I was just giving him some inside family gossip, but they mentioned it in this book that he did great. Well, you know, what's really interesting is that there are pockets of Jews in really peculiar places all over the U.S. And the reason why they were placed there through this organization after the war is so that if there ever was another Nazi oh, attempt, yeah. they wouldn't be able to round them up. That was the whole point. If you scatter them, you couldn't you couldn't get them all at once. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, it's amazing because like how also so many so many Jewish families left their Jewishness in the old world when they yeah. came to the, to the states. You're right. And you know, like John Kerry, you know, John Kerry, Madeleine Albright, all these people, they they all of a sudden found out they were Jewish and they had no idea that they were part of the tribe. Uh, I, I well, wonder if a lot of that was like if that was fear-based too. A lot of people probably um, you know, didn't want to didn't want to talk about it because it probably didn't feel very safe at the time. Maybe they were, well, you know. I mean, think about you're running away from these pogroms in, in the Ukraine. I mean, and you get to finally get on a boat and you make it to the United States. What are you going to do? Right. You know. Right. <laughs> I mean, you're you're not you're not going to bring it up. Is what yeah. you're going to do? I mean, my uh, musician friend uh, always credits my musical talent and my artistic talent to my Jewish blood. I take we'll it. We'll take it. We'll yeah. take it. Hey. <laughs>
this conversation is really interesting to me because it's sort of like it's it's uncategorizable, just like the music. And I feel like I was listening to um, what was uh, Till the Cows Come Home the other day, and I thought I could if you asked me to place this on the timeline and you give me a million dollars if I got it within five years, I would I would fuck that up. I wouldn't get it. Yeah, you guys, you I hate saying this because it sounds so music journalistic, like like nonsense, but you guys cannot be placed on a timeline. Your your music doesn't have a date, a dated feel, and it can't be stamped. It's it somehow eluded that. And that is remarkable because I can't think of anybody else. Thank you. Right. Who else is like that? Thank you. To us, that is a real compliment because that for us has always been the intention of our music and only times we've ever been unhappy with something that we've written is when it is feels like it's been time stamped there's none of it yeah. i don't hear any of it there's i don't think one thing you've done is time stamped not to me um, you know who used to you know who said that to me uh mark um because uh i started um through connection i started playing with steve Wynn some um, through Gutterball, and um, we were playing the uh, Knitting Factory in New York, and Anthony DeCurtis was there. Mm. And this was, you know, early ni- ni- 1993 or 94. And he's the one that said, you know what, uh, you know, I still love your f- first album because it, it sounds so fresh today. You know, it's like, it sounds so now. And this was like 1994. That's why we got him to write liner notes for that re release. Well, he's right. Here's, oh, here's my great great grandfather. Oh, look at that! Is that Myers Myers? He was um, surveying the Crozet Tunnel. It's a famous uh, tunnel in Virginia. They did a PBS program on it. What was the what was his name? But uh, up in Afton in Virginia, um, and a lot of Irish dug through. But it was one of the early railroad tunnels or something like that. And he was the engineer on it. Young Myers. There's a real resemblance, actually, believe it or not. Yeah. See. He was very uh, handsome and dashing. Yeah. And, uh, but he's the one that married out of the... <laughs> out of the... His, um, I guess he fell in love with her. But it's, um, it's really fascinating. And nothing like love to, to confuse the... Uh, the ancestry right like nothing like people will people will leave anything behind for love that's right as, as they, they should. should as they should yeah, as yeah. They should. absolutely um, um you now mark you told me last time we talked and i totally agree with you that there's something that happens with you guys it's something supernatural almost when you guys come together love tractor comes to life and i know when mike did those records without you guys um, which may or may not be a sore subject. I mean, they're fine, but they're not, the, it's just not the same. No, it's and- like a solo album and we would have been fine with it um, if, if he just said Mike from Love Tractor because right. you know, I think all of us should do our solo stuff so we can come back with our Love Tractor stuff. And uh, some of our solo stuff, we can sculpt into Love Tractor stuff, but uh, um, that was a real shame because it took. It was like pulling teeth, getting the sky at night out, and uh, and everybody was ready for us to tour. And um, you know the the old band problems came back, and um, uh, 
it was kind of devastating because I, I, it was it was as Robert Walter who wrote Rome said you know you just laid a golden egg but it doesn't last long you know the wave right. hits and then you got to ride that wave and and we didn't and uh, and then I had a, a a boy late in life I'm old enough to be his grandfather and um, I just didn't have time Mike was sending tapes but I didn't have time and I tried to call him and and uh, say you should do a solo record, you know, because uh, it was you could tell that's, he was um, he was no, that's what broke my heart. But it didn't sound is like, that it should have been solo because it. Cause it I would have liked it a lot heart. more because I love his guitar playing and yeah, you know, this yeah. idea and that idea. But to, it was it was I guess you know it was a real shame. So the, but, you know they are solo records and they stand on their own for what totally. they are as as solo records and, yeah you know and they're fine I, you know i like them as i've told him you know he needs to pull them from that label and re-release them under his name because there is a story to be told and, yeah and you know for me mark you know I, I i work in advertising and marketing and it when it's a that's how you market a record is you have to set an audience expectation correctly. And, um, you know, it's like, I can't go and put out a record and call it Love Tractor. I can't do it because it's not Armstead and Mike and I, but you know, Mike got, Mike was pushed into it by this record. He wanted to get the stuff out and the record company said, well, we'll only put it out if you put it out under the name Love Tractor. Mm. and so he just went with it and you know that you know shit happens and going um you know we're all friends to, to yeah after the to the momentum of um themes from venus we again you know lost another drummer and um were able to really worked hard to uh talk john poe from guadalcanal diary to uh join us and man, we we were a force to be reckoned with. Um, but um, all, I guess uh, I guess some I guess we needed a vacation for a little bit. I wasn't ready for a vacation because it was time to do another record. And, and actually, uh, John helped us write some great stuff. The, the, one of them came out on the sky at night which we call the sky at night. Um, so we were jamming, even though we brought in a new drummer, we were writing some really great stuff. And then- uh, And again, demoing it. Like it. Feeling the, it was like feeling the Carter years again. It was like, all right, what <laughs> to do the next record? We have to procure some money. And it, it wasn't, it, we needed to, by that point in our career, we needed to, a soft pillow and a feather bed of a label to say, all right, you all just, we're going to take you to the studio and you're going to give us great stuff. Right. But instead it was like, uh, you know, the pickaxe and the shovel and go out and dig the ditch. And then, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of uh, to make everything happen. And it would just burn us out creatively, but we were was on to something and it was a real shame that we, lost that momentum and uh well we i don't think so I, in 95 but it was still like really hard to i disagree like cats i you know i disagree but 
just artistically because I really think we needed the break and we all agreed we needed the break. I mean, it was like, and we naturally just, you know, I, I, I mean, I guess we stopped touring maybe around 92, was it Armstead? Uh, we just said 91. for, you know, you know, um, but we were, uh, I mean, I just couldn't we do. We were breaking out some. Uh, we had some. We were, you know, we had some really good stuff happening. But um, creatively, like some of the stuff that you and I were into, Mike wasn't necessarily into, or um, or John wasn't into, or somebody or, wasn't. Um, there was always. I mean, that's that comes with the territory. Um, you know, sometimes the stuff me and Mike would be into uh, or you and Mike would be into and it was sort of like we weren't coming together uh, as well as we could have but I think we were burnt out we, uh, we were we, totally we were totally burnt out is what it really comes down to and we and needed we, and and it took me a long time to admit it to myself we were really burnt out and we had spent pretty much 10 years straight on the road. And, and it was because management and the, um, and our agents and whatnot kept us on the road so they could make money and really didn't have much concern for our well-being. And um, we were not smart enough because we were so, we'd started so young. I mean, we did our first two albums basically, I think, when we were still in art school. Um, I know the first one, we were still in art school. The second one, we'd written a lot of it while we were still in art school. And so, you know, we had basically hit like the age of 30 and we had been working nonstop. And as we had toured Themes from Venus to death and we came back and we started writing the next record and we're working on it. Andrew was burnt out and wanted to leave the band or okay, and he was sort of smart about it. I mean, he because he was burnt out, and Mike was burnt out, and and we needed we we should have planned a break, but we didn't plan a break. You, we just said we can't tour anymore. We'd signed with another um, management company. We told the management company that we need time to write. Um, we can't go on tour. Please do not do this, the what, first thing to do is they put us on the road um, to make money. You know, we're like the little traveling monkey sitting on a monkey grinders thing, and <laughs> the dancing monkey on top. And, you know, it was like, no. And then, so we we just sort of drifted apart. We stopped, you know, we there was a certain point, I remember telling the booking agent, don't book any more shows. Don't book any more shows. And I think we played a show at Georgia Tech and that was like our last show. And then we all sort of went our own ways and got it sort of together. And then in 95, like three or four years later, we started meeting up again. And, and that's started, when the magic started immediately. And the magic the, started. in the room together, it was like, you know, you bringing in ideas, but it was like, you don't expect, you know, I had this, uh, little bass chord thing mark and i've worked on you know years before 
But I remember going over to Mike's house and just playing on that. And I did not expect what he was going to come up with. It. He came up with this, you know, thing that I didn't expect. I was like, man, that's great. You know, that's what I love about when Mark and Mike and I get into a room together, all this stuff happens and it's uh, right. and what happened, really well, exciting. But, uh, it was a complete reset for us. And, you know, we didn't know that, we didn't know how, we weren't mature enough to know how to do a reset other than that we had to stop or we were gonna kill ourselves. And not kill each other, but you know, kill ourselves. I mean, we right. were well, worn we, out. The problem and artistic. We were, we were a working band, and uh, we should have. We, we should have had the uh, uh, financially. We should have been in a position where we could take a break. And uh, well, we were working know, like so much to back or somebody like that. But we weren't. We always had to, because we. That's what we did. We were a band. We didn't. We weren't like medical doctors that had the side band on the weekend. And, right. Man, the guy's got the best equipment. And he, he can but we were, we were working the, to pay the management. We were working yeah. to pay our sound engineers, the roadies, the uh, the other people. We yeah, were they always to got pay. paid at the end of the tour. And then we'd, uh, you know, we were peanut butter at the grocery store and get ready for the next gig. And, uh, you know, we were working That's so funny because bands that had major label support were always opening for us, you know, um, Camper Van Beethoven. And, um, I, the 10,000 Maniacs used to open for us, but um, I don't know if they had major label support at that point, but you know, then we Eventually, were opening for right? them because we were in their same they were on call, I, they were family, but they a lot were, of bands would they'd had hey, we got a record deal, but we need to get an audience. So they get us, they get gigs with Love Tractor that had a built-in audience. Wait, um, how did you guys get the New Order? I didn't even know that you that you opened for New Order. I had no idea. It was yeah, through man. it was through a, a really good friend, Mark Williams, who um, started out as a he was a DJ at the 688 Club in Atlanta when we were starting out. And we would, you know, play little gigs at the 688 Club in Atlanta, you know, with Pylon, with REM, with any of the other bands, you know, we would, there might be like a little Athens weekend. And Mark got a job working as sort of the local stringer promotions guy for AM Records in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And he worked his way up in the music business till he was like president of AR at Interscope or one of the big, 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 big late. I mean, you know, he's the guy that signed um, um, what was Prince Stefani's band? Smashing Pumpkins, Gwen Stefani. But no doubt, you know, yeah. No doubt, all that. I mean, huge stuff. Um, I saw him recently and had lunch with him. He's a great guy. Um, and he always looked after us. He did. And, and he, he you know, he would, he would always get us our record deals. Um, and he would always, like, see something that would happen. And he, I, I don't know how he knew this or how he figured it out, but he put us on this tour with New Order. He worked it out. And that he must have known that New Order had been listening to us. Mm. Because when we went on tour with New Order, there, it's really funny when you go on tour, especially with like English bands. It's, it's usually kind of standoffish and whatnot. The first show we did with them, they came to our trailer. And our dressing room, which was a trailer outside, 
and they came in and you know were hanging out with us and which usually doesn't really happen where was that salt lake city i think it was in houston maybe or something yeah that was like our third show one of this it was one of the first shows i don't know where it was but like this all right lads you know, uh, <laughs> and you know they turned out to be like buddies and they and we realized that they had been listening to our first record because they they did um can i tell the story yeah you can tell Art. the story <laughs> um well you know we love tractors forming everybody loves joy division and kit the drummer on our first and second album and I just love Kit because he wasn't a drummer but he wrote drum parts and he was really into Steve Morris um is that uh George yes, Steve. Drummer? yeah and um so when you hear our first album you know and of course you, you can kind of hear Devo in it too like whip it you know that that drum beat was prominent back then really um so, so um uh, but he he wrote these drum parts out that the song relies on his drum parts. Like you can't have a, a drummer like Keith Moon or somebody that spins their sticks and be able to play those, those songs off that album. They'll just fall apart. But um, so, uh, you know, and then we do Around the Bend and um, Kent has announced that he's leaving. That was devastating. And we're at a party at uh, Mike Mills' old girlfriend's house. They're they're on tour. Murmur had just come out. Around the Bend had just come out. And uh, so at the party, the new the new New Order album's out. Power, corruption, and lies. And you know how it starts off. <clears throat> and when that was playing, Kit turns to me and he says. This is too fast. This this sort of sounds like our first album, which we always thought was too fast because we were all like nervous and 21. And actually we played all that stuff really fast then too. And uh, I had this stuff sub with Bill Berry, you know, their their first EP with Wolves Lowers, all that's really fast, you know. Super quick, yeah. About yeah. And uh, Bill will say, man, I cannot play that fast anymore. And they were, <laughs> when I had the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they were trying to pick a song. They were talking about Wolves Lower. And it's like, I don't think I can play that fast. But, <laughs> but anyway, so Kent thought that that New Order song was too fast. and uh, But we all grew to love the album. And, and, um, and then a couple of years later, we get to go on tour with them. We've worked in Andrew on drums and uh, our neon lights had come out. We didn't even know it was number one on the college charts, but, you know, we just believed in ourselves. And uh, of course we love New Order. We got the tour and they were doing a lot of their um, drum machine stuff like uh, Steve and his wife, uh, is it Gilliam or Gilliam? Gillian. Gillian. If they were hung over. Operating the drum machine and the keyboard together and, and a lot of people like that because it was a hit, but our friend Alex, uh, Alejandro Escovito, when we were in Austin, did not like it. <laughs> like, in fact, we were, you know, a real band with drums and all that. And we had a great crowd in Austin. It was almost like we got a 
better response in Austin, but I think they were really hung over. But uh, two nights before in Houston, we're, um, we had driven from like Boulder to Houston and then we got to get to Dallas. So we're loading up the van and New Order's on stage in the theater. And they, and Steve is playing the drums and he's doing everything gone green, you know? And I love that song. And I heard it, I ran out <clears throat> to hear that. It was like, burr, 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 and, and Bernard was jamming on it, you know, his, with the chords he plays, he was playing them high register. And I was mesmerized and everybody else is out in the band. And, um, okay, so they just finished that. And it was like, good, I, I caught that. And now I can, we can ride to Dallas. Well, then right after that, Hooky starts playing and Bernard's taking a drink of whatever water and uh, and right when Steve comes in right when he's coming with the drums and this is what I heard love tractor and then he, and he, you can see me Alex on the screen he goes love tractor <laughs> and i ran out to the van and i, I was like man y'all are not going to believe what just happened you know because we love them and i mean they were you know the people used to call us sort of the american new order and it wasn't like we were trying to imitate them but uh at all really wise i like uh i like high register stuff in a cello type fashion, but I was never trying to play like Hookie, but I always loved his high register bass playing. It was uh, it was a it was a nice thing, and 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 we were at a point where we weren't trying to sound like anybody. It was very important to sound like yourselves, you know. And 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 REM, you know, they're like our brothers or first cousins. And and uh, actually, Bill's been texting me during this, Mark. He's showing me the bedroom I get to sleep in. And I sent him a picture of Diva, the dog I just showed you, Alex. Tell him to come to the studio on Saturday. I, I am going to encourage that. But, um, but you know, we would tour and people like, y'all know, know R.E.M.? Not really. We don't really know. You know, like, <laughs> we're like best friends with them. And we're in art school. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, but all these bands are moving to Athens to sound like R.E.M. You know, they, everybody, and then the world is like sounding like R.E.M. Yeah. We were doing our damnedest not to sound like R.E.M. Not that we didn't love them. I mean, I, I just, they're such a great live band and they're, they're friends. I love their music. And I heard the one I love on the radio the other day. I was like, God, I love that song. Great song. But, I'll, I'll uh, tell you what, every, Every band that was declared to be the next REM sounded nothing like REM. I mean, that was the whole yeah. thing. Like, I mean, I love, I love the Connells. They were on the show a few weeks ago. They didn't sound like REM to me at yeah. all. Yeah, um, they're great band, they're great, great band, but but not REM. You know, or Seven Simons, or it's like I guess I could hear a little bit of that sort of murmury thing. But to me, REM was so um, you know unique that they didn't sound like anybody. And um, just any curiosity for you guys now. Um, what's the current state of the band? I love how active you are. You don't live near each other. Is this all done remotely or is it, how, what is the makeup of the, the physical? We've been meeting in Athens um, and we're going to meet this weekend to uh, work on stuff. 
um, we've sent everybody sent each other music and then Mike has access to a studio and he'll go in and record stuff over top of it but it's really better when we're all in the same room right and we really need to be in the same room playing music and uh, speaking of Bill Berry he he's the last few live gigs we've done we've gotten to rehearse in his basement and it's just great because he's he is a love tractor. He'll tell you that he's uh, he's in the love tractor family, and uh, and he's you know he was in on the writing of a lot of the songs on the first album and uh, and the second album and, and the second album. So uh, he's very um, he's a taskmaster when we're in the basement, you know. And if we sound really good, he'll let us know. And if if it didn't sound all that good. He'll let us know, you know, and then, uh, and then he also plays with us too, usually guitar duties or keyboard duties. Um, but um, uh, anyway, we're just proud of that. And um, I feel like we all, and Peter said this in an interview uh, on UOG when we were all young bands that we all try to sound different from each other, but we're all influenced by each other. You know, mm. I, you know, I wouldn't admit, I knew deep down is something that I was influenced by, by Pylon, but I'd forgotten that I was influenced until years later. It's like, oh, that's, that's sort of, I was, you know, trying to do a little Michael Husky thing there, but I didn't want anybody to know that, you know. Actually, <laughs> I, I've got a, I've, I have a point about that. It's it. Somebody said, and I was being interviewed about the bands, and they were talking about ambition. And they said, "Well, REM was the most ambitious band." And I had to stop them, and I said, "Wait, you know, it was, oh, it was questions that were sent to me to sort of respond to, and that would go be in print." I, I said, and I called the writer. I said, "That is the wrong question to ask." period because every band was equally ambitious artistically and competitive competitively ambitious uh, yeah. where we and where we didn't want to sound like each other and we would also critique each other you know we would have no problem going up and saying like you know that song's not that great or that's a really great song and you know, REM just so happened to be at the right place at the right time with a great front man. I mean, they had the front man to take them, you know, with Michael, you know, anywhere. And, um, you know, they right place, right time, the right chemistry, everything. I mean, and it just took off. But to say that they were more ambitious than Pylon, or love tractor is completely wrong. It's Vanessa completely wrong. Too, uh, um, one time when uh, PRS was playing, and I, I I played Danger with them that night, played bass, and somebody was asking about that, and Vanessa sweetly said, "Yeah, well, we we all were competitive with each other, but you know, it's but we know, all loved we each all other. We loved each other, but but it was sort of a." a competition to, um, uh, I guess we all wanted to blow. Each blow, other off the stage. Blow right. each other. 
away. That's healthy. Uh, that's a healthy thing. I mean, I think that that makes you better. Um, it, it was, it's interesting, you know, because like, I remember like my, I, there was a song that we do called Cutting Corners and I would play chords on the bass on the song. And then Mike Mills coming over and saying, I like the way you do that. I'm going to start doing that. You know, so it's kind of like that to me on Country Club because I was playing chords on the bass. Yeah, you know, and it's just sort of like these sort of things that we're learning from each other and taking, but it was all very friendly. And but then, so for years, I was like, well, catapult. You know, Mike said that uh, I thought he was inspired by my chords on bass chords on the song Country Club that we still need to re to release. And uh, now Mark's talking about cutting corners, which is just a, one of the great bass lines. And um, so I'm, you know, now I'm thinking, well, maybe Mike was influenced by that. But I was at Bill's one time, and he told me that he wrote the bass line, the catapult. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know, after all these years, I'm like, I didn't know that. I love that baseline. It's uh, a great. Ba it's a great baseline. Yeah. I mean, I also feel that, and not to be disparaging to a band like the Pixies, I'm glad the Pixies are still out there. But I don't feel the magic is still there anymore. I'm, I support them and I love them and they're great. But something's just not the same. For you guys, nothing's changed. That supernatural yeah. thing that bands lose just for whatever reason. It happens. It happens. Right you guys it's still there and it, and it excites me to think that there's new work coming there's work people haven't heard um there's a lot of there's a lot more chapters to be written in the love tractor book and that makes me insanely happy it's um, you know we're I, I, I would say compare ourselves to craft work in the sense that we're we're slow about stuff sometimes stuff happens really quickly yeah. sometimes it takes a long time but we we will never put out stuff that we we don't like if 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 one of us has a reservation about it it doesn't come out it's not released and because to us that's you know we're showing our face to the world right and we you know it's really important and we have a backlog of over 20 songs and I don't know how many of those songs will get recorded or there. I know there's about five of them that we're dying to do and we've got to as, get in a room and sort of as like, soon as, um, you know, get this COVID thing out of the way, but we got, we just got to get into a room and we've got all these songs we want to visit, but I, I guarantee you other things are going to happen. And that's when it gets <laughs> exciting. It was like, oh my God, you know, um, just it's like stuff that you don't expect and uh, and everybody seizes upon it. That's when when we're brothers. Uh, there will be a new Love Tractor album, I get the feeling that's safe to say. Yes. There will be. I, you know, I don't know if it's going to come out as a, a group of singles yeah. and then be collected, you know, because the way things come out now. Um, but we definitely we have a sense that we really want to release. We have a ton of mater unreleased material. Um, a lot of material that's written that's been demoed and it's sort of sitting in pieces. It needs to be actually, the whole band needs to get in a room and play it. In fact, the other, uh, a month ago, we were in Athens re-recording one of the songs and, um, um, and, 
this weekend, I'm not quite sure what we're going to work on because we get in a room and we have plans to do something and then something else comes up. But um, one of the things that we were working on is the the re-release of Sky at Night, which, you know, is really one of my favorite records that we ever did. And unfortunately, we've never toured or supported the record. And we were, um, we were good to go, though. Variety Playhouse, Knitting Factory in L.A. I'm really and, bad at booking shows, but they were they wanted us. And yeah, and but, I was you know, able to do it. But that's that's a whole other subject. But you know, it's <laughs> we just never you know we we never toured or supported that record. And one of the other things that happened with the record was when um, it came out, the we had demoed the record and done extra work on it. Um, but never really completed it. And Razor and Ty had signed us and sent, gave us extra money to finish the record, but then gave us a deadline, a really short deadline to finish the record. And so we never really finished the record. It's um, pretty damn finished, if you ask me, Mark. All we need to do is do a better mix. Um, you know. And we move on to, we don't need to break something, I mean, fix something that's a gem. Uh, after yeah. listening to it the other day, it's like uh, we can work on new stuff. And as we were talking about New Order, I used to like it. We go to the record shop, they'd have a single out or an EP, and then later it would come out on an album. And yeah, we were talking about you know releasing song by songs because in the CD world, I can't stand it when you get a CD and there's like 20 songs on it. I mean, it's like, give me a couple of songs to sink my teeth into. And then, yeah. I'll, then I'll digest the other ones later. But it was just like, Hey, here's my work. And then there's like 35 songs. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a, it's a lot. I can't, I can't listen anymore. I can't handle it. No. It's a yeah. Lot. You know, it's, you know, the sky at night, one of the concepts behind it was to make it a double album. But you know how do, you can't make a double album no, out of a, we don't need out of a CD. The Sky Night's great because even though uh, it, it's a band in a room, and and uh, Alex, we had a, a great drummer on that. And when we would play the Forty Watt, we were jamming and we were playing new stuff that hadn't been recorded yet. So you know, the, the things from Venus era had that power, but uh, yeah. This had, we were sort of going back to our uh, earlier stuff, like, uh, you know, in Themes from Venus, Mike would turn his amp up to 11, and I had to wear earplugs, you know, and then when we were doing Sky at night, he, it was like, Mike, can you turn up a little bit? But I love that. It was like this, because Love Tractor has a delicate side along with, but I loved what you said about Themes from Venus, like all of a sudden we had all this confidence. To, oh, you could uh, hear it. I mean, you could hear you yeah. guys shifting into this into this gear because there's always been a meticulousness and a finesse to the band. And themes from Venus had this fuel injection to it that, that wasn't there before, which doesn't mean that it was bad when it wasn't there. It was just like noticeably, oh, holy cow. Um, yeah. You know, it was, is there a possibility of you guys coming out and playing shows in California, yes. in the West yes. Coast? Yes, we really want to do that. We need to do that. Um, I'm dying to play your area in LA. In Seattle, we always did well there. Yeah, I could see Before there was a big scene. Um, and, you know, we should do New York and uh, uh, DC and Chapel Hill and here and Athens. 
be great to play Austin and Chicago, but just here and there do some shows because we're a great live band and uh, you know the kids like seeing the original members yeah play and we don't have to be sex symbols i mean you know we still are sex symbols <laughs> but probably not to them but uh, <laughs> um, to the old ladies to the old ladies yes yeah i've got a couple of uh of things to say uh, about our live shows and I'm charging my old phone that I got a text from a friend when we played the 40 watt recently. And he wasn't, he knew I was in a band love tractor, but he wasn't familiar with it, but I'll go into that later. But um, I went out to San Francisco, a friend of ours that used to come see us. They had a band called the flywheels that um, Dennis Dyken from. uh, Oh, smithereens. Uh, so Smithereens plays drums and yeah. uh, Scott McCoy plays guitar and our friend Kim Wonderly and um, what was his name the songwriter that really great songwriter that uh, they had a band the Grifters um, oh yeah I know who you're talking about yeah um, yeah you know um, him and they did some uh, yeah sub pop really cool songwriter and they used to like us and um the bass player in his band, Eric Scott, was a good friend of ours, and they'd always look after us in San Francisco, but um, a few years ago, Eric had died, and we did a show at um, uh, Parkside, is, is it the Parkside? With the, and um, it was this great reunion of, um, of, of bands. Um, Stephen Rohrbach and Matt from the Rain Parade played. Um, Scott McCoy played all night. And I played on like the Skywheel songs, but you know, nobody knows Love Tractor, but he wanted to do, um, he wanted to do um, um, South Central Rain and Radio Free Europe. And when I play songs like that, it's like, you know, I don't, it's so fun to play Mike's bass lines because it's like playing my bass lines, but he'll do a run a little bit different. I love his runs and I kind of have to hammer it down like the run on South Central Rain, but it's, it's like coming home. There's like, it's like, uh, there's nobody that's going to play that line better than me um, just because it's in my blood. You know, it's not, not because, you know, a good bass player could play it like that, but I can just relate to his, playing but um uh and um uh they did some smithereen songs and who else was on that gig um there's some other famous guys you know from the area but uh uh mike myers brother was there paul myers yeah he plays bass with uh, the guitar player who was touring with matthew sweet i forget his name he was a great guitar robert quine no 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 it's another guy who's just great but um but it was so fun talking to Paul Myers about bass playing because he, he was impressed with my bass playing. But I was playing Mills' bass lines, but they might as well have been my bass. If that makes any sense. <laughs> Just because we're, I love his bass. I loved his bass playing since I first saw him. Stite was my first friend at REM, but uh, I've always loved the bass. I was a guitar player, but uh, so that, that made me proud. But uh, there was a guy there that had seen us play 
Berkeley Square. Oh, sure. With the wow. 10,000 maniacs. Jeez. And, and um, that night, you know, we're there like, they're another brother, sister band. And that night we, we finished with Fun to Be Happy and Natalie came out on stage and sang on it. And um, I, I told, he said he was at that show and I said, I always wished we had a recording of that show because Natalie just sounded so great. And, uh, you know, it's lost in time. And he goes, you know what? I might have a recording of that. And he, I remember thinking, this sounds really good. And he held it up a mic with a tape player, you know, like, a, like at a Grateful Dead show or something. Right. And he recorded it and he texted me. I was staying in Marin County. And he goes, good news. I found the tape. And he transferred it to a CD. And I was so excited. But so I have cousins in the Central Valley. And so Kim and I, drove, she drove me down there after the day after the gig. And we put the CD on. And man, the band sounds killer. And it's before, I think it's before we recorded This Ain't No Outer Spaceship. But it has that balls to the walls thing that, um, that we got with Themes from Venus. But Mark, it's so good. Um, I've, I've got that on CD. <clears throat> but we're playing songs. We, we Greedy Dog off of, the, off of uh, Cows, Till the Cows Go Bums. That sounds killer. But these songs that we were just about to record, I think we had recorded some of them on This Ain't No Outer Spaceship. And some of the songs that were meant for that album might have gone to Themes from Venus. But but when we were listening to it, we were in the hills of Altamont. Yeah. You know, like, you know, the Gimme Shelter with all the hippies oh, yeah. walking. It was the same landscape. <clears throat> and I was just, <clears throat> excuse me, my throat's dry. <clears throat> and I just remember being so proud that we were such a good live band. And I was also riding high on the gig the day before that we, we played. And you were riding high. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I, yeah, I must have gotten high in the morning, but it was still, I didn't need to be high to, to hear how great that was. But Well, I, but, I I never saw you guys live, and I, <coughs> I I never did, and I think I was too young at the time to get into, I mean, the Berkeley Square, We the last show I saw at the Berkeley Square was Soundgarden with the Meat Puppets in like 80s. Oh my Soundgarden. God. That was a crazy bill. They um, were good friends of ours, Meat Puppets. We they, never were, yeah. them, they were great. I took my parents to see Jonathan Richmond actually um, at the Berkeley Square when I was like, oh, great. They loved him. Um, but well, I hope you guys will come back on the show and let me know when, when tour dates happen. And I, I am so happy that we're all pals because I love you guys. And I'm just so happy you're back and doing things and creatively alive and, uh, and sounding better than ever. Yeah, well, well we love talking to you, Alex. talking to love tractor the feeling is mutual get the themes from venus remastered version 
It's a truly brilliant album made even more brilliant by the meticulous remastering by Love Tractor. PropellerSoundRecordings.com is where you need to go to order Themes from Venus, the remastered version. And I don't know if you're into this kind of thing, but there's yellow vinyl. I like that. I'll get that. Uh, They also have black vinyl. They have some cool bundles you can get. There's a t-shirt, a red Love Tractor t-shirt, which is awesome. I bought one. You should get one, too. You'd look great in a Love Tractor t-shirt. My God, you would look fantastic, I think. Uh, Love Tractor Athens uh, on Instagram is where you need to go to uh, follow those guys and see what's going on with them. They're pretty active on Instagram, uh, so do check them out. They're a good follow. I'm not too shabby of a follow myself. You can follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor, or you can email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. And feel free to visit me at AlexGreenOnline.com. Don't forget to visit our radio station at BombshellRadio.com. My God, there's so many things to do. Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you this. I mean, I tell you every time, but I forgot to mention it today. That Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. I defy you to find a platform where we are not available. Wherever you get these things, subscribe, rate, review, tell all your friends, blah, 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 blah. Let's close the show with a longer listen to I Broke My Saw from Themes from Venus by Love Tractor. Enjoy it. Thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast, only right here on Bombshell Radio. Shell Radio.